Radio Mano Papachango. people i'm jet lagged i pulled a muscle in my back a couple days ago in new york so if i move in the wrong way it's like i got a knife stuck in me did i mention i'm jet lagged i think i did uh i uh, flew in from new york uh, two days ago i think i spent one night in barcelona and then uh, flew up here to Amsterdam, where I am right now, sitting in my buddy's apartment. He's not here yet. He and his uh, girlfriend are in Italy, I think, and they're driving back this evening. So I've got a couple hours before they get here. Uh, and I thought I'd um, put together a podcast for y'all, because that's what I do. I'm a podcaster. Uh, anyway, I'm doing that. I'm sitting in, in their apartment uh, in Amsterdam. If you know Amsterdam, it's sort of next to the library, between the library and the central station, overlooking the water, uh, looking back into the center city. It is fucking beautiful. It's beautiful. Uh, maybe I'll take a, a selfie or something and put it up on the website so you can see where I am. It's, uh, I'm looking down at, at patterns in the water. Speaking of patterns in the water, I got this email recently. Uh, hey, Chris, love the podcast. Hope you're enjoying Gran Canaria. Sounds amazing. Uh, I'm from North Bay, Ontario, Canada. I wanted to send you some songs from my first album I just put out in case you want to give them a listen. Hope you enjoy these. Also want to thank you for being part of what seems to be a shift happening in the world towards a more positive state of mind and outlook on life. It's especially fortunate for free-thinking people my age and other upcoming generations to have an online presence that they can relate to along with other podcasts like Joe and Duncan's. Listening to you guys can uh, set your values and intentions in the right place, and I want to thank you for being part of that. So I don't know. This guy seems to think that I'm part of some positive movement in the world, which is amazing because I think of myself as a grumpy old bastard, but... Hey, happy to happy to be part of your positive movement. Uh, I'm going to play a song that uh, was part of what this guy sent me. His name's uh, Nicholas Caniano, Caniano, Cani, Cangiano, I think. C A N G I A N O. Nicholas Cangiano or Cangiano. Cangiano. It's probably Italian, right? It's got to be Italian. Cangiano. Anyway, Nicholas, I'm going to play this song, and then I'm going to tell you one more thing about Nicholas that's going to blow your mind. Westward and the sun it rises, bitter morning clouds float above my head, and my body goes numb to the sight of it all. My body goes numb inside of it all. No survivor will I live, and 
many survive Nicholas is 16 years old. What? Yeah. Yeah, that kind of wisdom and talent in a 16-year-old kid that can make even grumpy old me feel kind of hopeful. Uh, I'll put up his uh, link to his YouTube channel on uh, the webpage for this episode. Um, but it's kind of complicated. So and if you can't go there and go through that link, then just go to YouTube and do a, do a search on him. Uh, again, his name is Nick, N-I-C-K, and his last name is C-A-N-G-I-A-N-O, Cangiano. Thank you, Nick. Beautiful song. Give it all away. Indeed. Indeed. Well, I'm coming back from an interesting trip to New York, That hence my jet lag. Um. Vice flew me over uh, to be on a, a TV show called The Business of Life. Uh, I was on a panel with a woman who's um, the sex blogger for Vice. Very interesting woman by the name of uh, Carly Schiortino. And a lot of Italians all of a sudden. Italians everywhere. Uh, anyway, uh, her and uh, uh, the other one, I can't remember the other woman's name, but she's a uh, consultant for tinder she's a sociologist she consults for tinder um yeah interesting kind of a strange experience live studio audience situation uh i was the only guy the the host is a hostess the two of tv hostess i don't know the uh the mc the person running the show is a woman and is me and these two panelists i was also the only person like over 40 probably in the room including the cameraman and the producers and everybody so it was it was strange i was an outlier for sure um yeah very interesting experience uh and before that the, the reason i went really i went and flown over to new york just to do a quick tv show the reason I really went was because uh, a guy named Josh Fox, who is a Oscar-nominated documentary filmmaker, you may have heard of him. He did a movie called Gasland that was nominated for the Oscar about fracking. Uh, 
and then Gasland 2. And then he's just come out with a film in the last month or two. It's available on iTunes. If you have iTunes, it's called How to Let Go of the World and Love All the Things Climate Can't Change. It is a beautiful film. It is heartbreaking. It is informative. It's funny. It's surprising. It's just such a fucking beautiful piece of work. And um, so I've wanted to meet this guy for a while. He contacted me initially because he wanted to talk about doing something around Sex at Dawn. He has a development contract at HBO who have um, funded his, his work for a while, I guess. And uh, But he went to the, the head of programming at HBO and uh, proposed that we do something, and she killed it, as she has at least three times. The same woman has been pitched Sex at Dawn projects three or four times that I know of, and she's shot them all down. So uh, anyway, he since then, he's been inviting me to these parties he has in his property out in Pennsylvania. Uh, he has these big, huge parties where he'll invite like 300 people and no one knows who's going to show up, how many are going to show up. It's just random crazy. He's got uh, 69 acres of forest with a pond and a stream running through. It's just fucking beautiful out there. It's at, at the border of Pennsylvania and New York in the upper Delaware um, basin. And um, we spent one day floating down the Delaware River on inner tubes. It, you know, it's just beautiful. Bald eagles, blue herons, um, red hawks, clean water. You see maybe four or five houses in three hours floating down, just forest. It's just so, so beautiful. Anyway, I've wanted to do that for a long time and go out and just meet some of his friends. I want to meet him, obviously, but also you figure a guy like that has some interesting friends. And that's true. Oh, so I recorded one podcast floating on the pond. Uh, we're going to call that the Pondcast. Ah, uh, with a woman who, uh, what was her name? Dia, Dia, I think. Anyway, you'll be hearing that soon. She walked, check this out. She walked from Ecuador all the way down the Andes to the tip of South America. What? Yeah. All the way down. She walked the length of South America the hardest possible way you could do it, which is along the Andes. Uh, so up and down, 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 and then the driest desert in the world. And then glaciers. Yeah. That sounds like fun, doesn't it? Anyway, she tells that story, and we're floating on a, a rowboat, scraping along, you know, you can hear the weeds sort of scraping along the boat as we float around on this lake pond. And, uh, yeah, so that, and then I met the guy, uh, one of the, a couple of guys who ran Bernie Sanders' uh, political campaign. There were a lot of political operatives. Josh is one of these guys who's sort of the hub of a wheel, so he's got... Lots of friends who are in politics. He's got lots of friends who are in environmental activism. He's got friends who are in theater because he's been working in theater for a long time. He's got friends who are in film because obviously he's a filmmaker. He's got friends who are writers because he's a writer. Uh, friends who are musicians because he's a musician. I mean, he's just got he's all over the place, this guy. Um, and uh, he's got, I would say, that he's got his fingers in lots of pies. Uh, I don't know how you get 
how you simultaneously have your finger in like nine different pies, but he somehow he's managed it. He's fingering a lot of pies, this guy. So then back in New York, he and I spent a day um, at his uh, uh, studio space in Brooklyn. Uh, what's it called? Wow. Like Wow International, I think it's called. Uh, and we recorded a podcast there. So that that was another really interesting conversation you'll hear. But today's podcast, which I'm 13 and a half minutes into this, I haven't even mentioned my guest, bad, bad host. Today's podcast is with Mark Manson, the the extraordinary blogger, thinker, talker, um, uh, and author. He's got a book out that uh, is quite good, I have to say, as you'll hear. It's so good that I, I almost resent the motherfucker, because it's about a topic that I've thought a lot about. Uh, it's it's uh, actually it's a book I wanted to write for quite a while. It's called uh, The Subtle Art of Not Giving a Fuck. And it's out this week as I release this. So if you would like to learn the subtle art of not giving a fuck, I would encourage you to get a copy of the book. It's If you have any intention of all of getting the book, this is the time to do it. I tell you as an author, because you really want to get that burst when the book first comes out. And the burst will hopefully launch you onto some bestseller list somewhere, even if it's, you know, the Des Moines Register's best-selling books in Des Moines, then you can say, you know, best-selling author, Mark Manson, and then that helps with uh, future marketing efforts. So if you are interested in learning the subtle art of not giving a fuck, I would encourage you to order his book this week. Yeah, although you might be listening to this in the future, and it's still good to order it in the future. Um, but if you want to help Mark out, this is the time to, to order the book. Did I mention why I'm in Amsterdam? Of course, partly it's to visit my buddy Martin and Linka, his partner in crime. Uh, but the reason I'm here now is that uh, the great Wim Hof has made uh, has set aside a day to hang out with me. That day would be tomorrow. Um, and at some point during that day, I'm going to record a podcast with him. So that's why I'm up here. Um, if you don't know who Wim Hof is, I would strongly encourage you to uh, Google him. Uh, just Google Vice Wim Hof, W-I-M-H-O-F, and check out, there's a like a half hour thing that Vice did about him, a profile of him that is really well done. I watched it again last night. It's very well done, really gives you a sense of who the man is, what he's up to. He's an extraordinary person, and he's, you know, I've had a lot of extraordinary people on this podcast um, but I would say Wim is one of the few who I truly believe is going to be remembered as a as a historical character of someone of historical importance. He's doing things that, um, yeah, if there's a future, he'll be remembered in it. So that's why I'm here. That's why I'm here now anyway. Uh, I'm going to be hanging with him tomorrow, um, spending some of that time, no doubt, up to my fucking neck in ice water. 
So I don't know how that's going to go over with the jet lag and the pulled muscle in my back and my sore wrist. I feel like a fucking jalopy that's about to, you know, enter the some kind of fucking race. But, hey, I'm going to do it. Yeah, I'm going to go sit in ice water with Wim Hof. But before I get too, uh, before I get too, too far into this, I, I want to talk about something that happened to me in uh, New York because it's confusing me and maybe, maybe you can help me clarify this. So I'm, I'm getting my, uh, my hair and makeup done uh, for the Vice episode. And like I said, these are all young people, American, you know, if you know what vice is, you can imagine the crowd, right? Or the, the, who the people were in the, doing my hair and all that. So I start telling the story that I don't remember why we're talking about hair, I guess. And I start telling a story about how I let my hair grow longer a couple of years ago because my wife and my ex-wife and my ex-wife's husband, uh, the four of us were hanging out and they were all giving me shit about how I needed to let my hair grow longer because I was starting to do some TV stuff and I don't look like what I am. So their point was, you know, you're starting to develop this public presence. You should look like, you know, a cool kind of, you know, alternative thinker, hippie guy instead of, you know, like some sort of out of shape ex-soldier, which I guess is what I look like with my hair short. Um, I, you know, I've people have thought I was a DEA agent or a cop or whatever, because I just, I, I tend to cut my hair short because I can't be bothered with thinking about it, you know? I'm not like a big fashion guy, obviously. So anyway, they're all giving me a hard time about this. And I said, okay, look, if if you you guys are all far more into this than I am. You think I'd look better with my hair long? Fine, I'll let it grow until my birthday, which is in mid-February. And I think this was like summer. So I'm giving it a good six months, you know. And so I did. I let my hair grow. And the the thing is, uh, you know, I've had long hair in the past. When I was a kid, it was quite long. Um, and it was kind of nice because my hair is, was like this copper color, and like 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 copper wire, you know, that kind of color. And uh, it was thick and lustrous and beautiful. In fact, when I finally went to get it cut, I mean, I'm talking when I was like seven, eight, nine years old or something, um, the guy offered to offered my mother to like let it grow a little more and then buy it because it would be really good for making wigs because it was this perfect color and it was thick and all that, but she didn't want it to grow any longer. We'd been fighting about it for months at that point. Um, anyway, so yeah, Chris, you got to let your hair grow longer. Yeah, it'll look cool. Okay. So I let it grow longer at this point in my life. It just sort of goes, it, it bozos, it, it goes out, it grows in like a triangle and gets wider and wider the longer it gets because it's kind of curly and, uh, it's thin on the top and it's thicker on those sides. And so I just look like a fucking clown. It's ridiculous. And, uh, so, you know, but the, but I had agreed to let it grow till my birthday. Then on, yeah, where was it? Uh, oh, because it was the Valentine's Day, which is in mid-February. I did a thing on Fox 
Fox TV in San Diego. They had me down there. I was living in LA at the time and we went down, did this thing on Fox. And then I, so I'm telling the story, by the way, to the vice people. And I, I saw myself in the monitor and I looked like an old lesbian. And that's when I decided like, no, I got to cut this hair. So so then, you know, the story continues how Cassie cut it and, you know, she just cut it in the back because she thought like that would make space so I could comb the sides and there'd be room. And then I looked like a fucking Hasidic Jew. And that was a ridiculous thing because I had these long curls on the sides and it was short in the back. It was just a mess. Anyway, it doesn't matter. The The point of the story is... Then I went, and I felt a chill. I felt like, because there were these two women I was talking to, and I felt a chill when I said I looked like an old lesbian. And so, okay, so then I went and I changed, and I came back, and there was this, you could tell they'd been talking about me. You could tell they were really offended by that. And I don't know if they were lesbians or I don't know. Um, but you could tell, like, uh, that that was a bad move. So... All right, so I've been thinking about this. Now, because I've got to, as you all know, anyone who listens to this podcast knows that I sort of go out of my way to uh, not be concerned with political correctness, with, you know, trigger warnings, with whatever, say what you want, you know, intentions, what matters, et cetera. I think it's clear, I mean, those people don't know me, but I think it's clear within my own heart and soul, and I hope within, you know, with the audience of this podcast, that I'm totally cool with lesbians. I got no problem with lesbians. I got no problem with gay people. I got no problem with trans people. I got no problem with anybody who's just following their path and not fucking anyone else over or, or getting in anyone's way. Um. But I, was, but I know I, I could feel that they felt that it was offensive that I said I looked like an old lesbian. Now, I felt like, well, that's not offensive. I'm making fun of myself, right? The whole point of the story is that I looked ridiculous. But then I thought about it. And I thought, well, yeah, but OK, I'm saying I looked ridiculous by comparing myself to a cliched um vision of what a lesbian looks like right which is i guess what i'm the the presumption there is uh an old lesbian is not particularly attractive otherwise i wouldn't use that to make fun of myself so even if i'm making fun of myself it's in i'm like hitting myself over the head with someone else you know which is also denigrating to them okay so i could see that but then what I'm really saying is like, I look like with that long hair, I looked like uh, a, a sort of manly woman, which obviously not all lesbians are butch, but a lot of them are. A lot of them want to look manly. A lot of them dress to look masculine they wear clothes that look masculine they choose shoes that look masculine they cut their hair in ways that are meant to look masculine so just by saying that to to imply that a a, a lesbian could look masculine is not inherently insulting 
So I'm, I'm honestly confused about this. I, I honestly don't know whether the lesson to learn here is that I inadvertently is that I have like a an unexamined or or I, I guess I'm examining it, but an unacknowledged and uh, uh, bias or or um, blind spot around this that and that was actually an insulting thing and that those women were right to be offended by it or no it's not it's not offending it's not offensive it's just uh, a you know a joke that they're assuming that i've got that i'm like an asshole and it could have been offensive if it was said by an asshole but i'm not an asshole so therefore it's not offensive so i guess what i'm saying is i don't know i honestly do not know if i'm an asshole or not so there you go i think it's you know it's one of those interesting situations where I really don't know. I, and, you know, at this point in my life, I feel like I pretty much know. I can pretty much, I might be wrong, but at least I've got an opinion. I've got a clear opinion on whether this is right or that's right. In this case, I honestly, I don't have a clear opinion one way or the other. So I just thought I'd throw that out there, uh, you know, because I think sometimes I come across on this podcast as a, having figured it all out. I haven't. I often run up against walls where I have no fucking clue what's going on. And I thought maybe there's some value in sharing that with you so that, you know, especially 16 year olds out there who are listening to this uh, will understand that, you know, getting older is interesting. But one thing it does not do is it does not help you figure out everything. Anyone who claims to have figured out everything is uh, probably full of shit and best avoided. So maybe there will be a, an interesting discussion of this either in the Reddit, um, tangentially speaking, subreddit, or in the comments section for this episode. I'd be interested to hear people's opinions as to whether I'm an asshole or not. But only talking about this, not in general. <laughs> Please, not in general. Uh, particularly from lesbians. If there are any lesbians listening, would you have been offended if you heard me say, yeah, I looked like an old lesbian with my hair like that? Um yeah. Okay. Uh, last thing I want to say for those of you who are keeping track is that I actually did send in the manuscript for Civilized to Death. It is in the hands of my editor with whom I had lunch last week in New York. Wonderful guy. Um, and uh, we'll see. We'll see. In a couple of weeks, he'll he'll have read it. He'll get back to me and it'll either be, hell yeah, Chris, here's a bunch of money. Go buy a van. Or it'll be... Chris, we've got to talk about this. I think chapter seven needs to be expanded and we need, we need a more uplifting ending. That, that's what I'm, I'm expecting to hear that actually. I'm like, yeah. Do you, are there like five steps to avoid the end of civilization that we can recommend to our readers? We'll see. We'll see what five steps I can come up with if requested. All right. Speaking of the end of civilization, I'm going to play you out with uh, a very intense piece of music called Europe is Lost. And it's by Kate Tempest. Uh, someone sent this to me, I think. One of you people, one of you listeners sent this to me. And fuck, wow, Europe is Lost, Kate Tempest. And then you're going to hear my conversation with the wonderful, charming, insightful Mark Manson. Thanks for listening to this podcast, everyone. 
even if I am an asshole, I appreciate your patronage, patreon.com. You're using my Amazon affiliate links at chrisryanphd.com. Keeps the bills more or less paid, and uh, we'll be putting gas in the van before long. So I really do appreciate that. And uh, I know you got a lot to do. I know there are a lot of podcasts out there. So every time you download this one or tell your friends about it, it makes me happy. Ciao. Is lost, America lost, London lost, still we are clamouring victory, all that is meaningless rules, we have learnt nothing from history, the people are dead in their lifetimes, dazed in the shine of the streets, but look how the traffic's still moving, systems too slick to stop working, business is good and there's bands every night in the pubs and there's two for one drinks in the clubs and we scrubbed up well, washed off the work and the stress and now all we want some excess, better yet a night to remember that we'll soon forget all of the Blood that was bled for these cities to grow All of the bodies that fell The roots that were dug from the earth So these games could be played I see it tonight and the stains on my hands The buildings are screaming I can't ask for help though Nobody knows me Hostile, worried, lonely We move in our packs And these are the rights we were born to Working and working So we can be all that we want And dancing the drudgery off But even the drugs have got boring Well sex is still good when you get it To sleep, to dream, to keep it dream in reach to each a dream don't weep don't scream just keep it in keep sleeping in what am i gonna do to wake up I feel the cost of it pushing my body Like I push my hands into pockets And softly I walk and I see it This is all we deserve The wrongs of our past have resurfaced Despite all we did to vanquish the traces My very language is tainted With all that we stole to replace it With this I am quiet Feeling the onset of riot Riots are tiny, those systems are huge Traffic keeps moving Proving there's nothing to do Cause it's big business, baby And its smile is hideous Top-down violence and structural viciousness Your kids are dope Stopping. Medical said it is, but don't worry about that, man. Worry about terrorists. The water levels rising, the water levels rising. The animals, the elephants, the polar bears are dying. Stop crying, stop buying. But what about the oil spills? No one likes a party pooping, spoil sport. Massacres, massacres, massacres. New shoes. Get a wife's children murdered in broad daylight by those employed to protect them. Live porn stream to your preteen's bedroom. Glass ceiling, no headroom. Half a generation live beneath the red line. Oh, but it's happy hour on the high. Street Friday night at last, lads, my treat all went fine till that kid got glassed in the last bar, place went nuts, you can ask all who it was madness, roll and red, pure clavet and about them immigrants, I can't stand them, mostly I mind my own business, they're only coming over here to get rich, it's a sickness, England, England, patriotism, and you wonder why kids want to die for religion, it goes work all your life for a pittance, maybe you'll make it to manager, pray for a raise, cross the bay's days off on your beach, babe, can under the anarchists are desperate for something to smash Scandalous pictures of fashionable rappers in glamorous magazines Who's dating who? Political cash in an envelope Caught sniffing lines off a prostitute's prosthetic tits Now it's back to the House of Lords with slap wrists They have got kids who fuck their heads of dead pigs But him in the hoodie with a couple of splits Jail him, he's the criminal Jail him, he's the criminal It's the of it all generation the product of product placement and manipulation shoot them up brutal duty of care come on new shoes beautiful hair bullshit saccharine ballads and selfies and selfies and selfies and here's me outside the palace of me construct yourself 
fucking psychosis Meanwhile the people were dead in their droves And no, nobody noticed Well some of them noticed You can tell by the emoji they posted Sleep like a gloved hand covers our eyes The lights are so nice and bright and less dream But some of us are stuck like stones in a slipstream What am I gonna do to wake up? We are lost, we are lost, we are lost And still nothing will stop, nothing pauses We have ambitions and friendships and courtships To think of divorces, to drink off the thought of The money, the money, the oil The planet is shaking and spoiled And life is a plaything, a garment to soil Toil the toil I can't see an ending at all Only the end How is this something to cherish When the tribesmen are dead in their deserts To make room for alien structures Develop, develop and kill what you find If it threatens you, no trace of love In the hunt for the bigger buck Here in the land where nobody gives a fuck All right, cool. Well, I am here with Mark Manson, who doesn't give a fuck. Um... And nor do I. So this should be an interesting conversation, I think. <laughs> You're all right. I told you in the email. You sent me a PDF of your manuscript, and I read. Uh, I guess it's the introduction or chapter one or whatever it is where you sort of lay out your thesis. And I wasn't intending to. I was intending to just look at the table of contents and you know pick a paragraph here and there to get a feel for it. But man, you are a good fucking writer, dude. Really, oh, thanks, man. You really are. Thank you. It's it's a pleasure to read, and it's it's seductive and funny, and you know, uh, and informative. It's it's great. I I can't say enough nice things about it. So I won't. What I will say is, it also pisses me off because this is a book that has been brewing in my head for years. <laughs> in fact, when when I got the invitation to speak at TED. Uh, I was talking with a friend and I said, you know what, I'm th maybe because they said I could talk about anything I wanted. And I thought, you know, maybe I'll talk about the power of not giving a damn, because yeah. every time I think about this and I start to get nervous, I have to remind myself that I really don't give a damn ultimately. And that's what even makes it possible for me to get up on a stage like that is that at heart, I really don't give a damn. And uh, I thought that would be a really interesting talk to give. And my friend said, yeah, that might come across, you know, kind of smug and, you know, save that for another one. <laughs> <laughs> so, so maybe you'll do it. Yeah, hopefully. So um, how, how it, did this book come to you? What's, what's the origin story here? Uh, the origin story is, is, I mean, basically, I, you know, I've been blogging for about eight years or so. And um, starting a couple of years ago... You know, I'm I'm just constantly like bombarded with with emails, reader emails of things going on in their lives and things they want advice on and things they're worried about, and, and uh, it just it started. I, I felt like starting a few years ago, it I I kind of reached this point where it felt like everybody was just getting really pissed off about stuff that didn't matter you know it's people are emailing me about huge problems in their relationship that their their boyfriend or their girlfriend called this person and then doesn't tell them and 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 then you get on facebook and people are freaking out because uh you know so and so did whatever and and i i don't know it just it just felt like i, I started to really get a sense that people were losing i mean there's been a lot written about the attention economy and how people are constantly distracted these days, nobody can focus and how that hurts productivity. 
but I really started to get a sense that because we're distracted constantly, we, we don't know what we should actually be caring about. Um, like it's our, not only is our attention being hijacked, but also kind of like our ethical sensibilities being hijacked all the time too, by like just really outrageous stuff or, or, you know, some like the worst of the worst news that comes through that is actually just a tiny minority of human experience. And, um, I started to, to write about this idea. I wrote a number of, of blog posts in 2013, 2014. And, and I, I wanted to write a, a book, uh, you know, it was one of those things like I wanted to write a book, but before that I didn't really know what it should be about. Um, and then this topic just kind of hit me in the face like a brick. And I was like, I, nobody's talking about this. Like somebody needs to, to say something. Yeah, that that's really the beauty of it that, you know, it's such a perfect skeleton to hang a very profound discussion on. You know, I think a lot of people are nibbling around the edges of it. Pretty yep. much every pretty much everybody's talking about how, hey, you care about the wrong things. Look at me. Right. As you say, clamoring for attention. Um, but. It's I think it's a really smart way to sort of um, to frame the whole thing. And and to be clear, tell tell people the name of the book and who your publisher is and when it's out and all that. Oh, so it's the the subtle art of not giving a fuck. Right. Um, it will be out September 13th. You can pre-order it right now. It's coming out uh, Harper One. Great. So it's on Amazon and everywhere else. Yep. It's a big, legitimate publisher, even though it's the only publisher that didn't bid on my second book. <laughs> because it wasn't, it wasn't it the one that published your first. <laughs> That's why. Yeah. I feel like there's an unspoken message there. I think there is. Yeah. <laughs> we'll pass on that. Yeah. Um, but anyway, uh, coming out September 13th. Now, to be clear, you are not saying that nothing is worth giving a fuck about, correct? Yeah, it's it's, and I, I explained this in the first chapter that this this whole idea of not giving a fuck, it's just, it's kind of a clever, irreverent way of getting people to start thinking about what they value. I mean, essentially, the book is about values. Uh, what what do we care about? What are we choosing to find important? And how does that shape our lives? And the book investigates that in a lot of different ways, um, because I, I, I've come to the conclusion that that's one of the most important things a person can kind of sit down and decide. And the the not giving a fuck language is just kind of a tool used to get the reader there in a very fun and yeah, irreverent way. <laughs> yes. <laughs> did, did did you get any pressure from editors to say, you know, people saying to you, well, why don't we call it uh, the art of not giving a damn or, you know, not giving a shit even? Did you get any of that kind of pressure? I got I got pressure the other way. I actually I had I had other titles in mind for the book. Um, and then I wrote I wrote an article called The Subtle Art of Not Giving a Fuck. Uh, yeah, I remember that one. Yeah, about a year ago. And um, and it blew up and went crazy all over Facebook and everything. And and my agent came back to me and was like, I think you should call the book this. Mm -hmm. And sure. And sure enough, the editors all kind of lined up and got behind 
got behind it that way. Yeah, good. Yeah, I, I've been seeing the word fuck in the New Yorker more and more recently, which I sort of, for me, is a, a, a bellwether of how acceptable certain words are to the intelligentsia. <laughs> so yeah. I guess it's yeah. okay now. Yeah. Um, I just wanted to read one passage that I thought was really uh powerful you say the desire for more you're talking about how people are struggling so much to to be healthier or you know work out or you know have six-pack abs or you know whatever improve their lives with improve in air quotes and you say the desire for more positive experience is itself a negative experience and paradoxically the acceptance of one's negative experience is itself a positive experience that that I, I read that uh, earlier, and then I went out and had a coffee, and I was reading a Harper's magazine, and I happened to be reading about this guy who's been on death row in San Quentin for uh, over 30 years, um, and it's pretty clear that he's innocent of the crime that he was convicted of. And um, the person writing about him is a Buddhist, and the guy, the prisoner, is a Buddhist, and they were having this conversation and the prisoner was talking about how lucky he feels and uh, cuz you know cuz he never he never felt oh, yeah. bitter he never felt that sort of self-destructive hatred and he's managed to live his life with some calm and peace and equanimity and and happiness and this quote kept coming back to me you know the acceptance of one's negative experience is itself a positive experience it's uh, that's sort of at the heart of Buddhism, I think. Totally. Um, and, and there's there's a lot of I mean, there's a lot of Buddhist influence on in my own life. And then there's quite a bit of Buddhist influence in in the book. Um, yeah, it's 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 funny. I actually I saw <laughs> it's you know, you were talking about reading something and being like, damn it. I wish I wrote that. Um, I read, I was reading the, there's a book called Sapiens. Um, yeah, I've read it. It came, it came out, yeah, a year or two ago. It's uh, it's a it's a really interesting book. And he was talking, he had a description of uh, how Buddhism was appropriated by Western culture that I thought was fantastic. He said that um, when the baby boomers in the 60s kind of took up Buddhism and a lot of the Buddhist principles, one thing that they really grabbed hold to was this idea of being detached from like material pleasures and uh, being detached from, you know, worldly pursuits and things like that. And that because those things don't bring true happiness. But what he said that they didn't grab onto or they kind of like left behind was also being detached from your own emotions, being detached from trying to feel good all the time or trying to be happy all the time. And, um, and he said that he thinks that's why a lot of the, the self-help world, um, over the past, you know, 30, 40 years kind of fell into this, like, uh, this narcissistic, like, Hey, let's all, let's feel happy and good and group hugs and, you know, punch pillows and scream about our fathers and stuff like that. When it, 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 there was like such a focus on, on just positive emotions all the time. When really, that's that's also uh, just as kind of an empty of a pursuit as uh, you know, chasing more money or chasing more popularity or things like that. Um, really, 
a big part of of my book is is I'm trying to kind of bring that back um, into the Western self help world. Is saying that like it's okay to feel like shit sometimes. Like it needs to be okay to feel like shit sometimes because that's just life. Like it's just inevitable that things are gonna uh, are gonna go wrong occasionally, and it's this it's this constant attachment. I think our culture has become very fixated on feeling entitled to feel good all the time, to feel as though we deserve to uh, be happy and have things our way and um, basically experience pleasure all the time, that it's, uh, it's hurting us. It's, it's, um, it's making us, it's removing our resilience and creating kind of a population of people who are very overly sensitive and... Um, you know, through temper tantrums. I, I've um, I've actually I've got a friend who he's he's one of these tech people that started a business and then sold it off. You know, five years later or whatever for millions and millions of dollars. So he he he's one of these people that suddenly found himself with a crap load of money, and um, he's really interesting to talk to. And one of the things that he told me once has always stuck with me, and he said that. He said, one of the most important things I've learned since being rich is, uh, he said, luxury is a trap. And he said that he has friends who, you know, are similarly wealthy as him, who will genuinely get upset and kind of throw a little hissy fit if they can't sit in like the first row of first class when they fly to New York or whatever. And like, and like the, to the point where they will change airlines like cancel their tickets spend an extra thousand dollars or whatever just so they can get the exact seat they want in first class and uh my friend was telling me he's like he's like this is this is a prison like he said that i mean it's great that they're they've experienced so much luxury that that that's become what feels normal to them but it's the more luxury you experience the more amazing things that you experience the and the higher your standards kind of go to to account for them uh the more shut off you are from from the rest of the world in many ways and so he he told me he said he saw a friend like that's a true story he saw a friend like throw a fit over not getting the first class seat he wanted and uh my friend said that since then he he always flies coach like and it's and it's a conscious exercise for him to like stay grounded and like stay grateful for, you know, a lot of the things he can afford or do these days. But I, I've always found that very interesting. Yeah. There's a chapter in, in this book I'm writing now um, where I talk about that effect of how, uh, you know, this game that we're playing, we're told that it's, we're all competing to try to make it to that top 1%, right? And that's where you'll be happy. And that's where everything will be great. And um, you'll find satisfaction and peace of mind. But in fact, just as your friend demonstrates, the 1% are just as miserable as everyone else, maybe even more so in some ways, because there's got to be a part of that guy who knows how absurd and silly and ridiculous he is, you know? So there's even yeah. shame thrown into the mix. And, um, yeah, I call it uh, uh, RAS, rich asshole syndrome. <laughs> 
you know, and it's not that it's not just that assholes tend to get rich because they're willing to cut corners that the rest of us might not. But it's also that when decent people become rich, they tend to become assholes because of um, some of the mechanisms you were just talking about. And also, I think the psychological mechanism, um, the sort of defense mechanism of needing to justify your incredible success while you see other people suffering around you. Yeah. You know, I, th I think the mind, because we are essentially an egalitarian species, these vast uh, inequalities of wealth and, and uh, every other kind of um, access to resources, and it, it bothers us. Even if we're the winners, it still bothers us. There's a yeah. wastefulness to it, you know? I, I think there's, um, I mean, I, I've experienced this in my own life, not with money, but, you know, I spent about seven years traveling around the world. And, you know, when I started out, it was, I kind of had this big dream of seeing the world and living everywhere and learning different languages. And, um, and I, as I started to kind of achieve that, I went to more and more places and got to know more and more cultures. I would come home and talk to people or I would, I would meet other people who also wanted to travel. And it actually, it began to feel kind of alienating in a lot of ways because it's, first of all, the more places you travel to, there's like a diminishing returns to it. So if you've only been to five countries, that six country seems like a, is like a, a really big deal. It's it, everything seems very new and different and exciting. It's different from the other five countries. If you've been to 55 countries, the number 56 is like, oh, it's another one of these. Uh, you know, it's like you can, uh, as soon as you get off the plane, you're like, you're, you can, are, it's like, oh, this is exactly like eight other countries I've been to. And even though it's not, but like it just, it starts to feel that way. And I noticed too that the more my experience broadened um, in that sense that, it, I found it harder to relate to to other people, you know, people who who would take a, a simple vacation or a simple trip. Like it, it, I found that there was all these things that I had experienced that I wanted to express or share with people that uh, I I now had a, a very hard time finding people who could understand. Um, and so something similar happened with with my blog as well, you know, as it grew in popularity, it's, I found it harder to, and it's not like, and again, and this is the thing, I think a lot of people perceive this as like a condescending thing or like an arrogant thing, but it's not that it's just having a website that that's read by, you know, a couple hundred people versus a couple hundred thousand. It's a completely different experience. And one is quote unquote more successful than the other, but because it's more successful, it makes it a more rare experience. And because it's a more rare experience, it's harder to find people to that can empathize or understand with the problems that go along with it. And so there's almost, I, it's almost like a, you know, a lonely at the top effect where the more you strive for this like worldly success, like popularity or experiences or money or whatever, um, the more you isolate yourself because you're essentially building an identity that is not, uh, 
that most people cannot relate to. Most people can't relate to your experience. It's like you. It's like you couldn't relate to somebody who bought a $5,000 mattress. And, um, and yeah, it, so it presents its own weird, bizarro set of problems in a way. Yeah. Yeah. And there's, there's a comfort in simple problems. Now, I know, like, we're a couple of, you know, relatively... Uh, wealthy, <laughs> successful white guys talking yeah. about the beauty of, you know, simple problems. Uh, so I, we're both painfully aware of how that comes across, I'm sure. Um, yeah. But, you know, there there's a lot of truth to what you're saying. And I, I think it's, um, you know, it's not just with money. It's as it's also experience, as you were saying. I, mean, I remember I, I went to New York a couple of years ago to do a speaking gig with Dan Savage uh, at the Brooklyn Book Festival. And, mm-hmm. um, you know, the day started, I met Carsey Blanton, who who's a singer songwriter who um, does the theme song on this podcast, actually met her for the first time, recorded a podcast with her. It was fantastic. She played some songs. Then she came with me. We met Dan, went to this, uh, event in a big church. There were thousands of people there. Amazing. Then we went out with Dan and met, uh, Andrew Sullivan, this, this great writer that I've admired for years. And he took us to a bear bar in the West village. And, you know, <laughs> like I'm in this bear bar with like two of the most famous, famous, brilliant gay guys in America. And I'm like, you know, the honorary gay brother there. And like, it it was just this amazing fucking day. And then we went back to this hotel where I was staying and went up on the roof, a beautiful view over the, the Hudson. And we were standing there and... And it just hit me like I, I felt like I had just eaten, you know, at six five star restaurants in a row without ever slowing down to digest anything, you know? Yeah. And I remember saying to Dan, like, fuck, dude, is this what your life is like? It's just like one incredible experience after another. Don't you ever don't you ever want to just eat rice and beans and sit back and think about what just happened for a few days, you know? <laughs> and it's like, because it was just too much. It's just, yeah. too, you know, I just wanted to have one of those experiences per week, you know, just spread it out yeah. for a while. It was, uh, it felt wasteful. Like I'm not, I, I don't have the time to really enjoy these experiences. They're coming in too, too quick. Well, and and it probably is his life. And, you know, I, I don't know how he responded, but he I imagine for him, it's like, oh, this is like just another cool day in New York, you know, like, <laughs> and, and it's, there's just this evil mechanism in our psychology that anytime we experience great things, our standards rise to meet it so that that becomes like our minimally ex- acceptable <laughs> level of experience for the future. And so it's like, uh, it's. And I've got a section in my in my book about it, you know, about the hedonic treadmill of like right. if you're always like chasing the next thing, you're basically like running in place. But um, yeah, it's it's a funny effect. Um, another thing I talk about a lot in the book is just that problems always exist. I think like uh, I, like I, I talk about like Warren Buffett still has money problems. Like, sure, his money problems are much better than most people's money problems. But like, I guarantee you that like <laughs> Warren Buffett wakes up in the morning and he's he, there's like problems he thinks about solving and, and things that he stresses about and things that he worries about. Like it just 
it doesn't just because he's that rich, it doesn't stop. Right. Well, you could also argue that his whole life is about money problems. Right. And that's that's what he yeah. does is think about money all the time. Um, yeah. Just just uh, for the record, Dan uh, looked at me and he said, I know exactly what you're talking about. Um, and I just really miss Terry. That's his husband. Yeah. And I think, you know, he's I think Dan is wise enough that he looks at it and he's like, yeah, that was fun, but it doesn't really matter. What really matters yeah. is that I, you know, the guy I love isn't here. And, you know, and he, I remember him saying, like, don't take this the wrong way, but I really miss Terry. <laughs> <It's> like, yeah. <laughs> well, and I, I think that starts to happen once you kind of experience I mean, I'm sure there's areas of your life where you felt that way. Like, I, I felt that way with traveling. It's like, all right, this is cool. Like, yet another, like, world wonder. Okay, that's cool. Like, it, it got to the point where I just felt lonely. Like, yeah. <laughs> it's like, I wish I had somebody here with me that I could experience this with. You know, it's yeah. like, I would give yeah. I would give up half of these trips if I could just have somebody with me. Yeah, yeah. And almost the the more amazing the place was, the lonelier I felt. Mm-hmm. You know, because it wasn't a shared experience. Yeah. Yeah. Although traveling with another person presents its own. <laughs> its own <laughs> exactly. Well I, well, I did exactly that. I went out and met my fiance. We started traveling together. And I'm like, oh, well, this is cool. But, yeah, there's a whole new yeah. new set of problems that comes along with it. Traveling alone sure was nice. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So, so what's the key then? Is is the key to to have uh the, to to have a life where you're constantly alternating? You know, where you're like in in terms of relationships. Is it have have a partner but have a lot of space so you miss each other? Because it's almost a masochistic kind of thing where we you need to actually cultivate the feeling that that is uncomfortable in order to enjoy the one that is comfortable. In other words, I find in, in yeah. my relationships that, you know, the, the ideal situation is to be apart enough to miss each other and then really enjoy being together. And when that starts to wear off, it's time to start missing each other again. Yeah. Some people would say yeah. that's dysfunctional. No, I mean, I think it's, it's probably different for everybody, but I've definitely found that in my relationship. Um, and it kind of happened, I mean, not by accident, but I mean, we were traveling together for about six months and things started to get like very tense and stressful. And, um, and I went and did like a small side trip with my brother for a couple of weeks. And then when I came back, it's like, we missed each other like crazy, you know, <laughs> like it's, um, I think there, there's something to that. It's, uh, it, it's like, you know, if you eat the same type of food every day, I don't know, this is going to be a horrible metaphor, but <laughs> <laughs> if you eat the same type of food yeah, every day, yeah. you know, it's like if you stop for a few days, it, it allows you to kind of like regain your uh, your taste for it again. I, I Not was, that I'm comparing my wife to food. Of course. Anyway. Well, <laughs> not to any particular food. Maybe the maybe the yeah. key to that metaphor <laughs> is to, you know, because I've heard the metaphor people use all the time for monogamy. It's like, yeah, I like pizza, but not every night, you know. Um, yeah. But I think what we're talking about is a little deeper here. I think we're talking about 
um, fasting occasionally in order to to feel hunger again, which then gives you the pleasure of eating. Yeah. You know? Yeah. And uh, it also happens to be really good for your body. The only thing that's ever been demonstrated to make animals live longer is cal caloric reduction. Um, you know, and I, I think, you know, this is really key to the argument you're making in the subtle art of not giving a fuck out September 13th. Um, the, uh, the, the quest for balance is undercut by a society that tells you you should always be happy, always be comfortable, always be sitting on the sofa watching TV, always be full of as much food and beer as possible, always be consuming uh, as a way to to uh, you know satiate any possible um, you know sense of inadequacy you might have. You just drug it out of existence as soon as possible. But the fact is. You know, we got to get up and run in order to enjoy resting. We got to, you know, we got to uh, work hard in order to enjoy sleeping. We got to be apart in order to enjoy being together. That's the nature of reality. And it feels like consumerism is in denial of that. Yeah. And and I would add on to that, that heap, the, the feeling that we need to always be striving for something more. I mean, it, there's a... There's almost like there's different categories on, but it, you could you could call it all just like driven to excess. Um, you know, for some people, it's it's an excess of consumption, lounging around, feeling good all the time. For others, it's an excess of ambition, striving, work like working too hard, working too often, um, trying to make more money, things like that. It's it's. I think the core message that that's underlined everything. And I think, and I, I explain in the book, like I'm not against capitalism, but it's, I think this is like the, uh, the dark side of capitalism is that it, it unintentionally creates uh, a culture that always demands more all the time. And when it comes to psychological health, um, often the most healthy thing you can do is simply accept and become satisfied with what already is yeah be here now as ram Dass yeah. famously put it yes there's there's nowhere else and there's no other time how old are you mark uh, i'm 32 32 okay um so here's a question for you i i my life changed radically when sex at dawn came out um you know i went from being traveler, English teacher, whatever, living hand to mouth, having a great time, but not really adding up to much to whatever it is I am now, uh, sort of overnight happened really quickly. I went from, you know, having virtually no income to having a book contract and a bestseller and, you know, agents and lawyers and accountants and the whole fucking, the whole <laughs> nine yards. Right. Yeah. Um, but I was in my late 40s and I often thought, you know, not not that, you know, I became a fucking movie star or something, but I, I had a taste of what it's like to have that sort of blast off experience. And I've often thought how lucky I was that it happened so late in life, um, yeah. psychologically, because, you know, I already had my friends. I already was who I was. There, there was I wasn't going to change. I wasn't going to ever become the guy who gets pissed off. He can't get the front row in first class. It's too late for me to 
become that guy. And um, but you're 32, you said. Yeah, you're. I don't know if it's too late for you to become that guy. I mean, <laughs> you. I hope. I hope it is. <laughs> well, you sound. Very, I mean, you're very grounded. You're obviously very smart, and you know you think things through. But you know, what if this book becomes a mega bestseller, and suddenly you know you're sitting on five million dollars, and you're getting invited to speak at corporate events for a hundred thousand bucks a pop? How is that going to change you? Are you going to are you going to be able to still not give a fuck? I mean, I, I feel like I can when it comes to the money, at least I, I feel like I'm I feel in a pretty good place with that. I mean, it, it's hard to say, right? Like it, it's because I don't know. I don't know what I don't know. <laughs> like, I don't know <laughs> if, if yeah. things took off and yeah, things got things got crazy in my life. Like, I don't. I don't know how that would affect me. You know, I'd love to say it won't at all. I'm sure it will to a certain extent. Um, I'm definitely not worried about the money thing. Well, you grew uh, up. You grew up comfortable financially, right? Yeah, I grew up wealthy. Like my dad is is a very successful business owner. So right. So that that and, aspect of your life isn't going to change no matter what. Yeah, and and I grew up in an environment where I watched like money wasn't used to solve problems. Money was used to avoid problems. And, um, and it, I think I could easily make an argument that the fact that my dad had so much money, uh, probably made things worse in the family for a number of years than if he hadn't. Um, uh, I see what you mean. So, so I grew I, I mean, I basically grew up in a rich, miserable family. So I saw firsthand that like money doesn't, fix very much i mean obviously like if you're starving or if you're at subsistence level or poverty level like it fixes a lot but you know beyond the middle class level i i saw firsthand that it doesn't yeah it doesn't it doesn't really change much um and so i've i always feel like i've had a very good because i i've had friends i've watched some friends go from uh you know become very successful very quickly and some of them it hasn't affected very much. Some of them it's affected quite a bit. Um, I definitely feel pretty comfortable where I am in, in terms of that, but yeah, I, I don't know the attention. I, I feel like I've tasted a little bit of it with the, with the blog getting, getting pretty big the last couple of years. Um, I, I've had a bunch of very weird situations where I'll be at like a birthday party or something and, and I'll be talking to a guy and, and about an hour into the party the guy like puts two and two together and it's like oh my god i've like read 20 of your articles um it's flattering it's it's very it feels very strange i i it's hard for me to imagine of like that happening on like a, a scale that's like five times more um <laughs> do you do do you do personal stuff or is it still all just in writing at this point I, it's just writing at yeah. this point See that's that's where it gets weird when people yeah. see they know your face and your voice and I mean I, I had a I met a woman in a bar one night and and she was like you know what do you do and I told her I was a writer and what did you write and I was oh my god you what you what and she ran, she just ran away came back with a sharpie pulled <laughs> pulled up her skirt and said will you sign my ass. <laughs> 
That's that's. Well, you've got the added advantage of having a, a best-selling book about sex. Yeah. So. <laughs> yeah. It's a, it's actually funny, man. I got to tell you, um, I had some family come visit me, so I just moved to New York, and like I'm like settled down for the first time in years and years. Um, and I went, and uh, my mom lives in New Jersey, so I, I drove down there one day, and and I have this big kind of like live like book collection collection of books that uh, I brought up and I've got like my little my desk and everything and I bought like a bookshelf and so I put all the books here so anyway I had some I had some family visiting I have a, a nephew who I think is 14 years old and he comes in he comes into like my office area and uh, he's like looking at my bookshelf and there's probably like 200 300 books just on like this wall and within 10 seconds, he, like, says, sex at dawn. What's that about? <laughs> and I'm just like, uh, it's like a 14-year-old kid. I'm like, oh, God, how do I explain this? Do I answer this? No, I'm not going to answer this. Oh, <laughs> you pussied out, man. <laughs> not my place, man. My stepbrother would kill me. <laughs> I, I've had 14-year-old boys on the podcast. Oh, my God. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. Um, yeah, in fact, I, I I get email. I got an email from a girl a couple of weeks ago who was twelve, I think, and oh, she wow. asked me if I would send an email to her brother for his fourteenth birthday because he was a big fan. <laughs> I was like, <laughs> "What? Oh shit! Oh I man, mean, the, what what generation is this?" Well, and also, like, what have I said? You know, because. <laughs> I, you know, because my podcast is sort of, um, you know, an example of the philosophy that you're you're outlining in your in your book, yeah. because, you know, as the audience has grown and, and I've started to feel like more of, um, you know, get a, a better sense of like how many people out there are listening to this and how cool they are and, and you know, how fortunate I am to be to have this relationship with so many people and. It, you know, it gives me an impulse to take it more seriously and start to like edit it and, you know, hire somebody to, to write transcripts and, you know, put show notes and like you really get take it seriously. But the problem is that that's not me. I don't take shit that seriously. You know, yeah. I never yeah. have. And I, I, I can't. And in a way. I think if I were to take it seriously, it would ruin the whole fucking project because it would make it work and it would make me feel obligated. And it would take the fun out of it. And, um, you know, so I'm just sort of like I think I'm in the sweet spot where, you know, I'm enjoying it. I'm, I'm definitely trying to, uh, you know, get quality for people. I feel responsibility to them, but I'm not letting it become, you know, any sort of work situation. So the point yeah. is. Do you think it's possible, um, getting back to the earlier theme of there are things we should t give a shit about and things we shouldn't give a shit about um, or a fuck about, uh, you know, you're talking about um, uh, the rich guy, uh, uh, what the hell's his name, the Berkshire oh, Warren Hathaway. Buffett. Yeah, Warren yeah. Buffett, right. So I look at people like him, and he seems pretty together. He, I mean, I don't know. I've seen him on interviews. He seems like a decent guy. Uh, I know he still lives in the house he's lived in for 35 years and, you know, he's married to the same woman and all that. Um, but he was he was he 
him and his wife are polyamorous, by that, the way. Yeah, that's what I've heard as well. That's I've yeah. heard I've heard that. Which makes it easier to stay married for 35 years, of course. <laughs> yeah, probably. I, I, probably 50 years at this point. Yeah, exactly. Um, but, you know, I look at people who are extremely successful, and I kind of feel like with a few exceptions where they've just been very lucky or born with extraordinary uh, talents, in most cases, they're fucked up. Because if they weren't fucked up, they would have stopped a long time ago. Yeah. You know what I mean? Because there's a point at which, um, you know, there's a price point at which wine stops tasting better. And it's all just about branding. You know, above for me, above 30 bucks a bottle, I can't tell the fucking difference between, you know, a $100 bottle and a $1,000 bottle. And yeah. You know, and business class is is plenty good for me. I don't need the fucking first row in first class. And, you know, there's this this point of diminishing returns, as you were saying earlier, for so many experiences. And it seems to me that the essence of wisdom is getting to that point, recognizing it, and then getting off the wheel. Yeah. So you never become the Rolling Stones, you know, you never become president or a senator. You, you, you know, you get to a point where you've had an impact, you're doing something cool, you've got an audience that loves you, that pays the bills, and you just stay there because you don't need to go any further because you don't have a hole in your psyche that needs to be filled with the adulation of strangers or something, you know? Mm -hmm. Well, I, I would throw in the caveat. It's not necessarily that you don't become the Rolling Stones, but it, what's important is that becoming the Rolling Stones is not the goal. It's uh, it's not what motivates you. It's not your primary motivation. Yeah, that's you know, it. So, it. Yeah, you're not uh, chasing the fame. You're just doing it for love of music, and the fame happens. That's yeah. the whole different thing. Yeah. And uh, I'm actually I'm a big Buffett fan. Uh, it's he's. I mean, I I don't know a ton about him, but like from what I've seen and read about him like he seems like not only is he got a good head on his shoulders but it's it's almost like i think he he kind of thinks takes the fact that he's made so much money is kind of like i've seen him in interviews say like people have asked him they say what what's the biggest contrib like what do you think is the number one factor that made you so successful and so rich and and his answer was well i was born white in the us in the 1920s and right. like, that's pretty much it. <laughs> you know, he's like, oh, and I happen to be good at evaluating businesses. Right. Um, but one thing that's cool about, you know, I think Buffett's a good example here. You know, there's so many guys, so many people out on like Wall Street or in, in London or Hong Kong who are like killing themselves 120 hours a week because they want to be billionaires. Um and then here you have Buffett, who, from what at least from what I've gathered, his his approach has always just been like, I really enjoy evaluating businesses, buying them, making them better, selling them. Um, it's something that he started doing when he was like 11 years old. He was really good at it. He enjoys it, and he's the the money has always been kind of just like a side effect that doesn't really affect him. You know, it's, he, he lives in the same house in Omaha. He only, own, he owns like a Volvo that he bought in the eighties. Um, and so, yeah, I, and I have a part in the book too, where there's this, I have this whole section on trying to be extraordinary. Um, 
and I kind of make the argument that with all the social media and the mass media and everything, there's this, there's this kind of unspoken pressure on people that you need to be extraordinary all the time or do something extraordinary or do something that stands out, gets a lot of attention. And I basically kind of urge people to, to do what you're saying, give up that impulse. You know, it's obviously try to get better, do good, improve at something. But like it, the point here is not to become famous or truly unique and extraordinary. And I finished this section by saying, you know, the irony here is that if you look at the most successful people, um, anyone from like uh, Steve Jobs to Kurt Cobain to, uh, you know, a lot of famous writers, their goal was never to be famous. Their goal was never to be to make millions and millions of dollars. Their goal was just simply like, I really care about what I'm working on. It's really important to me. I think it's good. And so I'm just going to do the best that I can to work on it. And that's a mindset that it's very hard to communicate that mindset or it's very hard to practice that mindset. But I think it's, it's hugely important. And I think it's, I mean, if, if, if I could sum up kind of like the lesson of the book, it's, it's that it's developing the ability to zero in on the few things in your life that actually really matter. Um, doing something you care about, improving at a, at a skill that you enjoy doing, um, contributing to the people around you in a healthy way. You know, it, it's, the book is really just kind of a call to return to those simple values and just let all the other stuff, the, the fame, the popularity, the money, everything like that, that will happen as a side effect. If you do, if you do the, the first things correctly, you'll get some of the other stuff, but like, that's the icing on the cake. Like the cake itself is the, the fundamental stuff in front of you. Did you feel any conflict between that philosophy and the process of writing a book for a major publisher and, you know, thinking about how you're going to promote it and, you know, the whole rigmarole of, of, um, you know, trying to get people to, to pay attention to the message and buy the book. It's mm, a little bit, you know, it's funny. I've had a lot of more problems since I finished it. Uh, writing it itself, it wasn't, a huge problem, but now that it's done and I got to like pimp myself out <laughs> and like, like beg people to, to, you know, give me publicity. And, um, it's, it's felt very weird. Um, there's <laughs> yeah. Writing the books, the easy part. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, it really is. I, and it's funny going back to my blog and trying to write for my blog. That's been like, honestly, the first time in my life I've had like really bad writer's block is not writing the book itself, but coming like figuring out what the hell to write after the book. Um, because I, I feel torn now. Like I feel, um, that I need to be writing stuff that's going to like generate some excitement. Um, but at the same time, I feel like all of my best ideas and, and best content is, is in the book itself. So I don't know, like, yeah, I, I don't want to just write a watered down version of what's in the book. Uh, I I want to write. I want to play around writing some new new type of stuff, like some new new topic ideas. But then I feel bad because I should be writing stuff that's going to get people excited for the book. So it feels very. I just feel stuck the last couple months. 
in a lot of ways. It's it's a very strange sensation. Yeah. Well, I'll tell you what I hope happens is that this book explodes so much because it it really is a timeless message and it's so artfully conveyed. And, uh, you know, with every, I laughed every page I read. I probably read 30 pages every page I was laughing. I mean, and you're you're so good at, you know, the self-awareness. I mean, there was this whole thing where you you referred to yourself, you know, Mark Manson in the third person. And then like two sentences later, you're like, well, what kind of guy is Mark Manson? He's the kind of guy who refers to himself in the third person and he doesn't give a fuck. And it's like, man, that's so good. And on so many levels, it's really nice. Anyway, I hope it fucking blows up. And then your blog can be about, you know, your take on what it's like to write a book that blows up. Because I think that would be really interesting. That would be cool. You know, be on that rocket ship for a while and, and tell us what that feels like. That That's uh, <laughs> it's pretty interesting. We'll get you on yeah. Rogan. Get you on Rogan. Then you'll really be big. <laughs> oh, man. It's a bunch of my readers have been they've been emailing me like, oh, you got to get on Joe Rogan or you got to get on Tim Ferriss. Yeah, yeah. And, and, and they, they write it to me as if, like, I have control of this. As I if know. all I have to do is, like, send a text message and yeah. Tim Ferriss is like, oh, yeah, we'll do it next Sunday. Like, yeah. I'm, yeah. Like, yeah, I'm like, yeah, dude, it'd be great to be on Joe Rogan. Yeah. Uh, good luck. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's funny. I get the same emails, like, you know, people saying, you know, why don't you have – um you know, Nassim Talib on your podcast. Like, <laughs> yeah, good question. You know him? Reach out. Go ahead. You yeah. Know. <laughs> Please. Yeah. Yeah, I, I think people don't understand that at a certain point that there, there's like a – it flips at a certain point of of fame and popularity where uh, you don't get to pick them. They get to pick you. Yeah. And uh, yeah. Yeah. Russell Brand just, is the one I keep getting. God, you got to get Russell Brand on your podcast. Like, Fuck yeah. Come on. Hook me up. <laughs> <laughs> I'll fly anywhere in the world to talk to Russell Brand. Shit. Yeah. Oh, man. It's, yeah. yeah, it's funny. It's a supply and demand. Yeah. I have a buddy in L.A. who uh, was taking yoga in a Hollywood uh, studio. He lives, he grew up in Hollywood and he was doing yoga and we were talking and then, you know, I, I said, uh, so what's it like? How's the yoga Are you enjoying? It? He's like, Oh dude, it's great. And, and man, it's like the women, you wouldn't believe the women in this place in the middle of the day. It's like, it's amazing. I said, so like, you, you know, you hooking up with a lot of women. He said, well, no, actually, cause it's just me and this other guy in the class. And he's like, he, all the women are into him. Is it really? Who's who's the guy? Russell Brand. Oh, God. <laughs> <laughs> like you got to pick a different yoga school, man. <laughs> you should add, you should tell your buddy ask Russell to come on your podcast. Exactly. There's your, yeah. there's your connection. It's right <laughs> my connection. Yeah. Sorry to interrupt you, Russell, but uh, yeah, my buddy's got a podcast. You yeah. should go on it. <laughs> yeah, you'd be great. <laughs> Do wonders for your career, man. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Well, I know you got to roll. Uh, thanks. Thanks for making time for this. And I really do wish you every success with this book, man. Thanks, man. And, Appreciate uh, it. and if it fails miserably, I'm looking forward to your insights into that as well. <laughs> yeah. Oh, there, there definitely, either way there'll, there will definitely be insights. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And, and, and you have, I, I am here giving you not the responsibility, but, um, 
the right it, check in on me if this thing turns into a huge bestseller check in on me in a couple of years if i'm <laughs> if i'm that if i'm that guy bitching about the first class seat and throwing it a huge tantrum um uh, i give you you can totally slap me, grab me by the shoulders, and be like, Mark, we talked about this. I warned you. I warned you, man. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, anyway, I, I mean, it's funny when you wish someone success, it, it, from my perspective, and which is very similar to yours, it sounds like, um, because you don't know what that is. You know, it's yeah. like maybe success is that the book doesn't sell so great, but some, you know, someone reads it and, you know, they reach out to you because they're so impressed and they offer you an amazing job or, you know, whatever. I mean, who knows what form success takes? It's not it's not uh, not always the sort of typical ones we expect. Yeah, but uh, absolutely. Yeah. I hope you I hope you get to a point where uh, you got what you want and then you can move on and do something else, whatever that is. It's but it sounds to me like you write out of pleasure and you, you really enjoy writing. It's it reads yeah. like you enjoy it. Yeah, honestly, like my my fantasy life is like for me, it's I would love for this to become a huge bestseller and make tons of money, not because I'm like desperate to, you know, be on the New York times list or whatever. It's, I just want to be able to write books for the rest of my life. Like, I just want to be able to like, chill out in my apartment, play some video games, come up with a cool idea and then go write like that. To me, that is like, I'll be happy till the day I die. So, um, you know, the, the financial success of this book is just would support my ability to do that. So that's why I, yeah. Okay. But and then I'll, and then obviously it's great. Like I believe very strongly in the message and I, I would love, I, I really want to get this, these, a couple of these ideas like out there into the culture and being discussed more often. So right. that's, that's probably my, my secondary motivation, but first one's purely selfish. All right. So to play devil's advocate, um, you know, I would argue that being in a position where you can sit back and, to make a living from your writing and write a book every once in a while and, and play video games, you're already there. I am. Yeah. But there's, uh, I guess, <laughs> there, but, but. I, 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 I am already there, but I'm still in that, that phase where it's like, uh, you know, it could all be gone next year or it, it's like, it, I'm still, there's no, there's no like long-term security in it. Yeah, um, but there never is. Even if it's a bestseller, there, you well, know, maybe, the, the next one maybe. could suck. Yeah, and and that the uh, your that that sound is the air going out of my balloon. Right? <laughs> <laughs> you just poked a hole in it. But I mean, there would be more. Like it's <laughs> yeah. You you know, you're talking to someone whose first book was a big success, who's now really nervous about the second book and looking at it and saying, well, if this one isn't a big success, then what? You know, so oh, it's man. you know, it doesn't. It, there's no there's no guarantee. And actually, I would say that what you've got is you know a couple hundred thousand readers of your blog. That's a durable lasting asset that isn't yeah. going to crash in a matter of a month or two. You know, that's, I'd say that's your strongest, uh, card right now. But anyway, yeah. I'm not here to give career advice. Uh, <laughs> and you don't need it. Thanks a lot, man. I know you got other interviews to do, so I'll let you go. Yeah. All right, man. It's great talking to you. You too, as always.
I hope you enjoyed that conversation as much as I did. Thank you to everybody who supports the podcast through Patreon.com. You can decide how much you want to give the podcast a buck a month, five bucks a month, ten bucks a month, or you can get completely crazy and give 20 bucks a month or more. Or you can give nothing. If you don't have any cash, don't worry about it. Just enjoy the podcast and tell your friends. The other way you can support the podcast is if you buy shit through Amazon.com or you know someone who does please direct them through the link on my page chrisryanphd.com you click on that baby once bookmark the landing page on amazon and then eight to ten percent of whatever you spend will come to support the podcast at no extra cost to you or your loved ones thank you to basin and range for that opening music at the beginning of the podcast very funky little tune there uh called the bright side of the sun i believe you can find out more about them at basinandrangeband.com If you want to talk about the podcast with other listeners, a good place to do that is on Reddit. Just search Tangentially Speaking, all one word. There's a community of a couple hundred people in there chatting about the episodes. I drop in occasionally and say hello, answer questions, whatever. Uh, Thanks to Shore Design T-shirts. Our garage is full of them. My mom has them all organized as only she can. Julie, thank you to Julie, my mom. She'll send those T-shirts out to you if you order them. Everything we've got in stock is from Shore Design T-shirts in Thailand. And you can check out their webpage as well for other designs. Thank you to Carsey Blanton. You can find out more about Carsey Blanton at CarseyBlanton.com. C-A-R-S-I-E-B-L-A-N-T-O-N.com. She wrote and performed the song you're about to hear, which is called Smoke Alarm. And it's a reminder to carpe fucking diem while you still can because... Ladies and gentlemen, you're going to die one day. Here's to you, Bennett. He said, baby, what's a big deal? Feel what you want to feel. Say what you want to say. You're going to die one day. For example, I could kiss you just because I want to. What's the difference if you turn away? I'm gonna die one day Why do you waste your time Thinking about your reputation Trying to meet an expectation Wondering what they're gonna say When everyone you've ever known Is headed for a headstone I don't wanna give the end away But we're gonna die one day body is an animal doesn't ask for much a little music and a soft touch why don't you let it out to play your heart is in a bird cage singing in your chest you want to shut it up but give it a rest you're gonna die one day
big deal if you wanna be free. Say what you wanna feel. Spend the night with me. I'm gonna take you up in my arms, and if we must go down, we'll go singing to the smoke alarms. We'll dance into the ground.